it's Betsy with the Dickey Foundation, and you're listening to Dickey's Doing Good, the podcast where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in the community. I'm thrilled because my guest today is Detective Misty Van Curen. She has been with the Dallas Police Department for more than 23 years and is currently with the FBI North Texas Joint Terrorism Task Force. She's done everything from patrol to SWAT to marriage protection to public integrity to coordinator at the Police Academy and more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Misty. Thank you for having me very much. (laughs) Awesome. So for for those folks who don't know you quite as well as I do, tell us about yourself, your law enforcement career, and how you came to be where you are now. Okay. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, Southside Oklahoma City and graduated from Mustang High School and um, I signed with OU to play basketball and I played three years of basketball. I transferred my senior year because we had a a new coach move in and then I transferred to Oklahoma Christian and played softball and basketball there and finished my degree in English education. I taught for a semester and decided that I had no business teaching. <laughs> and what, what grade level were you teaching? Seniors. Oh, senior goodness. Literature. So they were just a few years younger than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was um, trying. <laughs> and so I started applying and I applied with Oklahoma City PD and Dallas PD and Dallas hired me first. So I came here and um, did five years of patrol once I graduated the academy at Southeast Dallas. Another Southeaster. Yeah. Um, so that was, that included South Dallas, Pleasant Grove and Oak, and Oak Cliff. And then from Southeast, I went, I spent 10 years in, um, on our SWAT team. And then from there, I was a, a coordinator at the police academy for a little over a year. And then, um, I was drafted to be on, uh, Mike Rawlings mayor detail. And then, um, from there I went to intelligence and then to public integrity. And now I'm here at, um, with the FBI, still DPD, but I'm assigned to the FBI. That's very cool. And you've, you've got to do some really cool things. Which one's been your favorite? Ooh, um, my favorite, the most fun, um, was Southeast. Of course, <laughs> that's your young years where everything is just, um, so exciting and policing was a little different then. So it was, uh, so it was a thing where you just can't wait to get to work and you can't believe you get paid. And, and the guys I worked around were incredible. So that was probably the most fun. Um, the most rewarding would be my 10 years in SWAT. Um, it was one of those things where I was a little bit over my head physically. So I had to, I had to step it up and um, to be accepted by and uh, trusted by those guys for that long in my career. That was incredible. So that's rewarding. And I loved the work. Um, I also, that little stint at the academy um, teaching recruits was incredible. Um, it was it was only a, a little bit of a year, but I remember so many recruits that are still out and about and that um, they impacted me, I think, more than I impacted them. Well, and that must have been kind of fun because, again, you, you went to school, you were going to be a teacher, and then you realized maybe not teaching senior English. Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but then getting to turn around and be, be at the academy, that that's kind of neat. I did use my English, deg- my English deg- degree out there because <laughs> it was a lot of writing lesson plans and curriculum and um, and it was a way to give back. I had all this training from SWAT and then I had just left it. So it was a way to, to give back some of my firearms training, some of my tactical trainings. And, and so that was, um, and they're so excited and they're, um, they're motivated and it, it just, it, it kind of reminds you of how excited you were. And so that's, it was a really cool experience. Well, I sure. think everybody should get to do that. Well, and they, again, they're, they're new and they're young and they're fresh and they're excited. Yeah. It's just like you were talking about when you were at Southeast. And I mean, they've got to think it's pretty cool meeting one of the few women who's actually been on SWAT. 
Yeah, I guess um, <laughs> you, you just have to you have to recognize that you are their first and everlasting example. So I took a lot of pride in that. I, I was the first one to, to show up in the morning and the last one to leave and made sure my uniform was immaculate because I wanted to be a good example for all of them, something that they can strive and um, have a professionalism. And um, so I took a lot of pride in that job. Well, I mean, that, that's that's quite the mantle that you've got to got to wear there. I mean, in the sense that and to be to be the one that is representing. I mean, like you said, you're the first one they're seeing. You're the one from SWAT. You're you know, we have a lot more female officers now. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was a, it was a little bit of a different story. Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a lot of females now. Um, and there was a lot of like pioneer females before me that are some badasses, you know, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, no, no. You can, you can say badass. You're, you're a certified badass. We're using it as a technical I mean, term there. So yeah, <laughs> there's some white women that go way back that I'm like, thank you. Cause I can't imagine what they put up with to, to kind of lay the foundation for us that came along later. No doubt. And so you're with DPD now, but you're also with the FBI North Texas Joint Terrorism Task Force. Talk to me about that and I mean what you can uh, and, and a little bit about the work that, that that's involved with it in, in DPD. This has been a learning curve for me. Um, the F, I'm, I actually report to the FBI building and I'm, I'm, I'm on a team. I'm, I'm a a task force officer. And it's only 12 minutes from Flower Mound. Right. right. Yeah. So, and um <laughs> There's other task force officers on that team and there's and we're mixed with analysts and FBI agents and and our job is domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so anything from the the groups that stormed the Capitol or any threat to our livelihood, a possible person that may do a bombing or a shooting, we look into it and mm -hmm. um, the FBI has a lot of paperwork, a lot of computer systems. So I, I, that was a learning curve for me. And um, you just have to kind of, it's it's not like police work where you have an offense, where you have a robbery or a, a killing that you go out and actively investigate. It's, it's more vague than that. And you have concerning posts on social media or concerning statements. And then you start to look into a person to see and, and, and try to see if there's potential there or mm -hmm. if, um, they actually are going to commit some kind of domestic terrorism. And so it's, it's, it's more vague than what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. um, but it's nice to be able to learn something new and it's a new challenge. So are you working on, on cases kind of across the country, specifically in Dallas or, or how does that work? So if, if the, the person may be committing an offense in another city, but if he or she lives here, um, then we will get it. And mm -hmm. so, well, that's I mean, especially with having the January 6th, we had people from North Texas who, a lot, who went up there. So, so I imagine that's, that's kept you busy. Yeah. When I first went over there, um, th th those were the first couple cases that I got. Mm -hmm. And so you were seeing this, you were, and, and people were covering their faces. And so you were having to, you know, chase down, how, how do you all do that? I mean, without, without giving away trade secrets, how, how, do, how yeah, do you do that? There's some <laughs> facial recognition mm -hmm. and, um, some use of their cell phone, things like that, that mm -hmm. you can identify. And then a, a lot of times you're going out and interviewing and, 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 and they were there and they were doing, they were just there to support and they didn't do anything legally that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of those too. Right. Just being there, just yeah, being there just, wasn't necessarily an offense. No, not at all. And, and, and so you have to kind of separate those things. Gotcha. That's interesting. So now I know here in Dallas, we, we talk a fair bit about July 7th and, and what that happened five years ago on July 7th, 2016, when we had that, um, 
tragic shooting here in downtown Dallas. Uh, and I also noticed that you you mentioned, you know, policing was different 20 years ago, 23 years ago when you joined. Talk to me about how it changed um, things for Dallas and for, for a lot of law enforcement officers for y'all. How July 7th changed. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, any big incident like that is going to put people on guard. And um, I would say our biggest change within our department is um, the mental health aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people were affected mentally from that incident. And it was kind of there was kind of a stigma before of, of seeking out uh, mental health resources. And since that incident, there's been this great big push um, all over the Metroplex, really, of different um, nonprofit organizations trying to give back and trying to help and, and offering their resources. And so I feel like, though, it, it kind of broke the stigma a little bit. I think it, it's, we still have a ways to go, but where officers can maybe feel more comfortable or feel more where they can reach out and their guaranteed privacy. And so I feel like that was our biggest change because um, like, a, a lot of people were really impacted by that incident from all kinds of different aspects. Um, and then, um, of course, they weren't allowed to wear their gear during that, mm-hmm. and th- their heavy vest, and, and some people didn't have them. And and I know your, your organization has, has helped tremendously with that. And I'll speak from a very small section. When I first went to SWAT, you're, you know, you're issued your very basic gear, but you actually require a lot more gear. And you- So what basic gear are y'all issued when you join SWAT? You're, you're issued your weapon, your helmet, your vest. Okay. You know, and- And, and what level, what level threat can the vest, can the vest- Yeah, it, it's going to be your highest level Okay, so it is going to be a level four, it's going to be for Absolutely. rifle plates, things like that. Okay. Absolutely. But you have, depending on your responsibilities, you're, you have a lot more needs than just those basic things. Mm-hmm. And so a brand new SWAT officer going in will- will spend about $1,000 off the bat on their gear, on exactly what they need, on, on little details. And I know that you guys outfitted a SWAT team here in Texas mm-hmm. with all of their gear, and that will keep on giving. It's um, the stuff that you buy when you're brand new, a lot of that stuff stays with you your whole career, and you, you just use it over and over. So you have no idea how much that gear that you guys bought that, um, will help them years and years and years. It's really cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we just, it, it was for, for the Rowlett police here. Right, okay. Their SWAT department, we just did 13 sets of SWAT gear for them. And that, that's that was, amazing. It was such a cool thing. I think that's the coolest photo I've ever been in. Uh, they, had <laughs> yeah. the, they had the big vehicle that had been over in the Middle East and we took it out there. Um, but but see, at that point, you know, we, we love at the foundation being able to help first responders, being able to help, help law enforcement. And I will tell you what what is always amazing is the gratitude that we get that people are so appreciative um that that they have this kind of equipment because as you say a lot of people are having to buy their own um which which is which is certainly sad and we're, we're glad that we're able to come in and, and to help because for us it's really about making sure you go home to tuck in your kids every night you're out there doing a really dangerous job um and if i can make sure that you can get yeah. home to, to, to tuck in your kids then that that's that's the important thing the gesture is incredible. And so I guess that would be the other piece that July 7th had was a lot of people came out um, in support mm-hmm. when we lost these officers. And um, you just don't get to see that as much because you're in the intimate details of your day-to-day work. You're dealing with people that aren't happy to see you. Mm-hmm. And years and years and years of that builds up where you kind of get a, a negative outlook. And so small gestures like that to remind that the public really does care is amazing. And um, as small as it is, or just 
a card or a, a foundation buying equipment, it's amazing that it reminds you that people do care what you're doing and they do care about your job. And so that I think those were the biggest things that came out on July 7th. And I think some of those things are positive. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think they're definitely I think there there are some some silver linings. There was a lot of tragedy, but I think, um, you know, I, I think I can't imagine how hard it is to be in law enforcement. To your point, you're dealing with people and they're a lot of times their worst day and nobody really wants to see when they show up a lot of times. And they're like, oh, this is just it's not not going to be that kind of day. I mean, especially having spent 10 years in SWAT. I, I have to say that that job was it, it was so there's nothing that compares to it. And more so because of the team atmosphere that you're around. So you, I mean, the first thing you do together is some horrendous workout. And so you're sweating together, you're suffering together, you know, and these guys are, have a huge <laughs> Miser dip. Misery loves company. Yes. Okay. And so you have a huge dip, a huge cup of black coffee and a ridiculous workout all mixed together. And, you know, you dive in. And so... Um, these guys are pushing at about 70, 60, 70%. Well, I don't, I wasn't born with a man's body, so I'm pushing 110, you know, just to, <laughs> right. to show them I can do this. And so, but that's the very first part of your day and unless you're training and then you, you spend, you eat together and then you operate together. So you're, you're dealing with life threatening situations where it requires each skill set to come together and perform and it it creates a bond, a chemistry that I, is inexplainable. So was there a particular role in SWAT that you had? I know that sometimes there's preachers and snipers and other parts. What, what was your role within SWAT? When I first went there, um, when you're brand new, you're either going to slam, which is the big ram, mm -hmm. or you're going to pry. Okay. Those are the, the, and you get the vans. Okay. So you, you get the crap jobs <laughs> okay. and that's fine. Um, and so I've, I made an art out of prying. And that is prying screen doors, uh, burglar bars, anything that requires, you know, to pry open. That's what I started with. And you then, can pry those off like a champ. Mm -hmm, you carry that pry everywhere. I mean, <laughs> the very, this wasn't, um, it, this is before social media, but the, there's been two crane incidents. You have the one at SMU uh -huh. and you have, there was one at Parkland. And so we had to climb that crane and 200 feet in the air. And it, the ladder is about this wide, which is about a foot. And you have to carry that big metal pry and it better be strapped so good on you that it can't make one noise. And so that's where your gear comes in. Your gear has to be super quiet, super secure. It has to fit just right. And so that's what I was trying to say when, when you, when you buy that gear and they can mold it to them, it's amazing. Wait, so you had to climb 200 feet up on a crane with a pry. Yeah, because when you get to the top of that crane, there's an opening and you better be able to get in it. Okay. So, yeah. And I mean, what's going through your head when you're doing this? I was, I was pretty new on that, <laughs> on that one. And so in, in route, one of the snipers was in the helicopter saying, yeah, I see, I see the person in the operator's quarters. And so you're like, okay, this, this guy's really up there. And then there was a suspicious package described as well. So you're like, I hope this guy doesn't blow up this crane while I'm climbing it with my team, you know? <laughs> And so it was, it was scary. And once we got to the top and we didn't have to pry the opening, it was unlocked and, and we got in there and, and searched it. And we do, we, there's no person up there. And we're like, okay, where is this guy? And so we had to, me and Freaky, which is Todd Wilhouse, we were tethered 
to the and had to climb out on the boom and we had 30 mile an hour winds and so the boom is swaying and climbing out and so we never found the guy so i'm like did we jump did he jump and do we miss it and then we get into the operator's quarters again and there's boots and a jacket set up and i think that's what the sniper saw was the boots and the jacket and it, it appeared from his angle that mm -hmm. there was a person so so there was that one will always be a mystery it was a disappearing crane operator. <laughs> yes. That, 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 the, that, the suspicious package. That okay. That, that and, and the uh -huh. package. You were okay. No, there was, yeah. There, there. I mean, there. There was some items in the operator that could be described as suspicious, maybe mm -hmm. from a distance view. But yeah, it was the mystery crane. So then you're like, oh operation. man, now I got to climb back down this thing <laughs> with, with this prize strapped to my back. Yes. Oh my gosh, that that is kind of unbelievable. Okay, so so now kind of the, you've got all I'm sure all these kind of great stories. And everything. Yeah, I, I'm sorry I got off on a tangent. No, with the no, the stories are you kidding me? The stories are the best part. So I've got to say, what, what's the best thing for you about being in law enforcement? I I know you've talked a little bit about kind of the 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 family that's there, but what what do you find to be the best part of it? The best part. You know, when you ask people, why do you go into law enforcement? And people are like, oh, I want to help people. Um, I would say that I got lucky because it, it fit my skill set. Um, it's very kicking, we, kicking down doors, prying open. Well, there, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing that compares to pulling the whole front of a, of a dope house off and <laughs> making entry, walking on the side of the house. That's pretty cool. But no, um, I would say the brotherhood. Mm hmm. And it's, I guess maybe because I grew up playing team sports mm -hmm. that, um, and I love team chemistry connection. Um, and I love when a team can come together with different skill sets. I, that's just amazing to me and the bonding. Um, so I would say, yeah, the, the brotherhood of it, it, it it's, um, it keeps, it, it keeps you pushing. It keeps you wanting to be better for me, mm -hmm. um, and driving to, to be there for your, your group. So I'm not, not going to ask what the worst thing is, because I feel like Deep Nights would definitely be on, on yeah, that Deep list. Yeah, Deep Nights are not for <laughs> Deep me. Nights are, no, you're like, that's a hard no. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so what do you find to be the most misunderstood thing about it, about law enforcement? The most misunderstood? Um, you may disagree with me, too. Uh, Community policing. Okay. Talk um, to me about I that. I think, think you're asking officers to do to wear way too many hats mm -hmm. and and they're having to wear more hats than I had to wear when I came on. And so, yeah, I don't think you can ask an officer to dance in their uniform on social media or, um, to do these things that, or to be a mental health counselor when they don't have that kind of training, mm -hmm. they're trained to do this. And, um, I think, I think people misunderstand community policing. And I think it involves the community as well as the officers. I think it's a give and take. It's a 50-50. A Certainly. I mean, I think the community has a responsibility to look out for itself as well, um, whether whether it's looking out for a neighbor, you know, seeing something suspicious in the parking garage and calling someone. Uh, I think that's important. And But I also think kind of when you talk about community policing, it is important for, for police officers to be in their communities and to say, oh, well, I know Misty and she's a, when, when, because 
when we do see bad actors on the news. And unfortunately, so many of you are so good at your jobs and we don't hear about it on a, on a regular basis, right. but you better believe when something goes wrong, we all hear about it. Um, and that's where, to me, community policing is, is really important because that way I can say, oh, I know Missy, I know Joe. It, it's that That's not how police officers are. Right. Um, and no, we're, we're not going to make you dance on, on, on social media. Yeah, that's not for me. But I mean, if, if you want to, you can. I, um, no. But no, that's a no for you. But, but what you're, I think you're describing is beat responsibility. And there, there used to be a lot of beat responsibility mm -hmm. for police officers. They knew the people in the community that they were policing and because they were assigned to this, this small section mm -hmm. and they felt responsible for it. And if a robbery or a set of burglaries came out, they knew the hook that did it or the, the suspect. And, and so there was beat responsibility and they had pride in their community that they policed. Mm -hmm. And that's changed now that we're so understaffed. When you get in your squad car and log in for the night, they're sending you all over your section. Mm -hmm. You could drive 100 and 120 miles a night in That's the a squad lot. car, just from different parts of that section, because it's huge. And um, you, there's, it's impossible to have that connection with your with your beat or with that small community that or sector that you're assigned to. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like we, we should bring that back. The beat responsibility. The beat responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because talk to me about kind of how that that's a little different than community policing that you're talking about. I feel like community policing is more of a surface. Like when people think they um, being involved in the PAL program, mm -hmm. or, and which is all incredible programs, but you have to look at the very foundation of policing and and the, you're responding to the needs of the public. And um, if you have some kind of inner responsibility for say these. 12 stores that are in your area, you're going to, you're going to look out for it more. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when these things come out, you're going to investigate it on a surface level more of, of who, who is this guy breaking into these, these houses. And, and that you, if you look at an old um, patrol officer's whip out book, they have is what you call as a hook book. And it's all of the suspects that are committing all the crimes in there. And they know them by name. Interesting. Yeah. And they know these, these um, store owners by name and, and so it was a, a much deeper connection. And I think that's true community policing. And I think this verbiage that's come about is, is not that. It's more of things that you can see on social media, mm -hmm. not the real work that's going on behind the scenes. Oh, and there, there's absolutely, there's, there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes. I mean, again, police officers cannot be all things to all people. Sure. Um, I, I think there there's an interesting, you know, kind of, when I was with the Rowlett SWAT team, they actually had a mental health worker who goes with them. Because, oh, that's amazing. Yes, who's outfitted appropriately. Because we do know that mental illness does play a role, but you're not a trained counselor. And so, no. and, 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 and nor should you be, you have to act like one. Um, but, but it's also working with police officers so that you all can identify, huh, maybe this is something that's a mental health issue. In the same way that um, when I talk to police officers, y'all immediately know who's on PCP um, or meth because they, they're just, you know, a lot of time they'll close, it's run around like crazy, super strength, things like that. Yeah. But it's it's adding something else kind of to the, the, the list of things that you can identify and, and the mental health aspect is is more difficult i mm -hmm. mean i we have the we've dealt with people on pcp so we know what to look for what to think or how to react and same with meth and um but mental health can go all these different ways oh yeah and so um and that's so new it's such a it's i mean 
the mental health crisis has really gotten worse through policing in, in the past decade. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first part of my interview with Detective Misty Van Curen with the Dallas Police Department. Make sure to tune in next week for the second part of our interview. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickies.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community.